what a full morning it's been. Do you have room for just a little bit more? Uh, I mean, do you feel like you've been at the table and it's been course after course after course and am I full yet? I hope you're not quite full yet. Just a a little bit more. Uh, Here's where I want to start today. I want to take you into the realm of the marketplace and ask one of the key questions that exists in the marketplace. For every movement, for every product or, or company, there's usually some deep awareness of who your key competitor is. Who is your rival in that space? Who are you competing with? For example, if you're Coca-Cola, your key rival is Pepsi. If you're Nike, I don't know, Reebok, Adidas, which one? Okay, of course. I'm not a shoe guy. Can you tell? <laughs> for conservatives, maybe it's liberals. For PCs, it would be Max. For the Toronto Maple Leafs, it's usually themselves, right, Barry? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I raise all this to ask the deeper question. What do you think the biggest competitor is to the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the biggest competitor? Uh, if you were to name the rivals, uh, what are the things that prevent people from fully putting their trust, their faith, their hope, the best of who they are in the hands of Jesus? What is the biggest competitor to Christianity? The Bible actually talks a fair bit about this, but it doesn't name another religion when it does so. It doesn't name another faith. The biggest competitor to the gospel of Jesus is actually something far more subtle than that. In that, in fact, it's, it's so subtle that there are millions of people who will go to church this weekend, who maybe have read different parts of the Bible throughout their life, who think they're Christians, maybe they're involved in, maybe even members in a church, but in reality, the gospel has not situated itself in their life. And they're actually pursuing the way of Christianity's biggest competitor, not the way of Jesus. And I I would hate to see that happen in the life of anyone here, the life of anyone, wherever you're watching, whatever day you're watching. We would hate for that to be the case for you. For the last five weeks, we've been asking the question, why Jesus. And today we reach the exclamation point. The whole message of the Bible, the whole message of the gospel focuses in on and revolves around a question that really hangs over the human race. It is life's most important question. It's the most important idea, and and embedded within the idea and the question is the most staggering offer that's ever been placed in the hands of human beings. So if you'll bear with me for just a few minutes, uh, this will not be the full course dinner that maybe some of the sermons are, but for a few minutes, I want to talk with you about the question of Jesus and about the invitation that makes it possible to live a life with God today, to live a a, a day-by-day life with God, and recognizing that that life extends into a canvas that is eternal, that there is all eternity to enjoy the wonders that God has prepared for his people, which go on forever. Starts today, lasts forever. So that's, that's where we're going. You okay with that? Do we need to pass snacks or anything to keep? No, okay. 
Yeah. I want to start with a classic. Who said yes? Of course you said yes. You should never make that offer unless you have snacks at the ready. Uh, I want to start with a classic text from Scripture. This is actually foundational to the with God life. And we're going to read it out loud together. This is written by the Apostle Paul. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So will you join me as we read this? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul says that the Jesus way is the way of grace, that you have been saved, rescued, redeemed, delivered as an act of grace. Now, the alternative to that is what Paul would call a life of works. We probably might call it something a little bit different. I'm going to call it the spiritual performance plan. Spiritual performance plan. And we get that because we live in such a performance-oriented culture. Where we live, the lives we live, the schools we attend, the jobs that we inhabit are predicated on performance. I have to get the right grades so that I can get into the right college, so that I can get the right job. I want to date the right person so I can marry the right spouse and together we can buy the right house. And then we'll fill it up with just the right kids. And we'll get those kids into the right school so it can start all over again and they can live the right lifestyle and build the right career and and have the right resume. I want to die at the right age. And I want to have the right people come to my funeral. And I want them to remember me in the right way. It all depends on how I perform. You see how it's all kind of about performance? And in that context, God becomes not savior, not refuge, not relief. God becomes the ultimate performance evaluator. I just have to perform. I have to perform at a high enough level, morally, spiritually, compared to other people. I have to go to church enough. I have to give enough money. I have to volunteer enough. I have to read my Bible enough. I have to do enough good needs. And all of it, all of it together, the spiritual performance plan is really quite exhausting. And Jesus says it's, it's actually self-defeating. And it's impossible. It's not his way. The alternative way, the, the way of Jesus, the way of grace says that it's, it's God's love, that it's God's favor, that it's God's presence now, that it's God's power, that it's God's forgiveness, that all of those things come into the world as a gift of grace. And you would think on hearing that, everybody would say, hey, that's great. Yay for grace. Hands up, clapping in rhythmic unity. Yay for grace. But it turns out there is a sticking point. Paul says, if we're saved by grace, there's no room for, do you remember what it was in the text? Boasting. There's no room for boasting. It says, this is not of yourselves. You didn't do this. You can't do it for yourself. You didn't do it for yourself. In other words, grace is going to require a deep humbling. It's the sticking point of grace. It's hard for us. Imagine this. Suppose your boss were to say to you, hey, you know what? 
I got a job for you. It's a free gift. You did nothing for it. You don't have the skills to earn it. You haven't merited it. You didn't achieve it. You don't deserve it. You didn't win it. It's just grace. And you'd say, no, thank you. I don't want that kind of a job. Imagine a woman who says to me, I'm going to marry you as a sheer gift of grace. You did nothing to earn it. You don't deserve it. You didn't achieve it. I'm marrying you as an act of sheer grace. And what would I say? I said, I do, of course. (laughs) But that's pretty much the message, isn't it? Grace says that you and I, we have a problem. And the problem is not a lack of education or a lack of maturity or a lack of skills. The problem is a state of of separation, if you'd like, or division. Uh, to put it deeper, we we have these we have these hearts, we have these yearnings inside of us that are like little idol factories. Like we just want to give our attention, our worship to everything that comes down the pipeline. And in doing that, we wind up separating ourselves from from our truest self from the people who are most important to us and ultimately from God who made us and loves us. And we need to be rescued. We have a problem. And from the problem, we need to be saved. The Bible is really sobering about this. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says, talking about us. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is what? Deceitful above all things. And beyond cure, who can understand it? I realize that's a a truth that is not popular in our day. We live in a very therapeutic culture. And there's something that's that's rich and understandable about that. We don't want to knock anybody's self-esteem. But in our desire to build people up, we've lost the foundation on which you must build. The prophets understood this about us, that morally and spiritually, we are, uh, we are just, we are undone by that kind of revealing self-diagnosis. Listen to what, what Jeremiah says in verse 10. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart, and I examine the mind, and I reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So what does God see? He sees a heart that is deceitful above all things. It just is. Now that's, the truth about the human heart. But it's not the only truth about the human heart. Human beings are capable of great acts of gallantry and courage and love and tenderness. And amidst of the horrific things that we see in our world, horrific violence and warfare, you also see heroic acts of compassion and service. What is capable of of more darkness, of more deceit than human beings and human action. Every once in a while I get a little glimpse of it. I see it in the world. And then harder still, I see it in the mirror. I want you to take one step deeper with me. If you're, if you're here in the room... Um, you know, flanking us on the stage are these two enormous 85-inch monitors. If if you're watching us online, maybe you're looking at a phone that's this big or a computer screen or something. But I want you to imagine being in a room with two gigantic monitors. 
And on those monitors are not the lyrics to the songs that we sing or the verses of scripture that we read, but the innermost contents of your life. The thoughts that ramble through your mind, the emotions that filter through your heart, all your secrets, every hateful thought, every gossipy word, every greedy act, every time you've lied, every time your cell phone went off in a sermon. <laughs> but just a, but all of it, all of the arrogance and superiority and ingratitude and complaints, all of the out-of-bounds fantasies that you've had, every hidden habit, Every act of betrayal, every wrong choice, all the false flattery, all the pretending. Every time you woke up in the morning and you didn't say, thank you, God, for another day. Every time you went to bed at night and said, oh, God, I'm going to trust you now as I lay myself down for rest, that you will wake me again in the morning. All the cries of people who are starving, who we cannot hear every guilty moment realizing that every moment that we remember, there are a hundred or a thousand more that we've forgotten because my heart, which is deceitful above all things, has enabled me to forget and to ignore and to minimalize and to rationalize all of it shown to the whole world in widescreen clarity. And then I want you to imagine even more that the God of the universe who made you and who is himself perfect and holy and just and powerful, but also loving and compassionate, is watching. And it kills him to see what he sees. To see the people who have made his world, to see them marred and twisted by deceit. You know, the Bible speaks about this, and and there's part of it that we love because we love justice. We love the idea that there is a just God. But the prophets say that, that any human being with any amount of moral clarity or spiritual sanity will just be undone by the thought that God sees what we hide. See, grace says that there is this chasm in our lives. It separates us from our own truest self. It separates us from God. And it is broader than you and I can conceive. My performance will not cross it. Worse than that, the wages, the consequences, the inevitable outcome of all of this deceit in me, all of this darkness, it's ruinous. It's death. The Bible says it's physical death. It's spiritual death. It's death in a thousand ways to the world around us. If judged by my performance alone, there is no hope. The alternative, though, the way of Jesus is the way of grace. Many people, when they hear that word, because we love that word in the church, it's not ours exclusively, but we love it just the same. We love to sing it. We love to say it. We, we, we love to pray it before we eat our meals. We love to pronounce it over people. Grace be with you. But many people hear the word grace and we underestimate just how staggering a thing it is. We think of it as kind of a nice, polite, hospitable, low-cost transaction. Oh, what a gracious host they are. What a, what a gracious thing to say. How gracefully she moves. The grace of God is nothing like that. Anytime somebody really gets what grace is, it wrecks them. 
I mean, the most amazing way. It, it leaves you undone. And then God remakes you. You understand, of course, that, that grace, that forgiveness, that this always costs someone. It costs you a little when you do it. When you forgive somebody, maybe you swallow a bit of your pride. Maybe you give up the right to retribution. It costs you. But the Bible says the ultimate place of forgiveness, the place at which grace reaches the summit, the ultimate price is the cross. And the Bible uses all of these pictures to convey what that means, the depth, the meaning of the cross. It uses the language of the marketplace. It says that Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? To many of us. It uses the language of the temple, the language of worship. It says that Jesus offered a sacrifice, not any old sacrifice, but one that was perfect in its beauty, in its fullness, in its completion. It was perfect, one that I could never offer. And it uses the language of the courtroom. It says Jesus suffered the punishment, a verdict of guilty, a verdict that I could never survive. And in all of these ways, there is an exchange taking place. The great exchange. You understand, of course, that that the act of one human being giving up their life to save another, that it's probably the most noble and compelling act. It's at the heart of all of our favorite stories. It moves us like nothing else can move us. But the cross tells us that, that that's the story at the very heart of human existence. That's the story which we love so much that is at the heart of God. You know, without this, without, without the cross, there is no Christianity. All you're left with is a spiritual performance plan. But at the cross, you are invited by grace to that great exchange. At the cross, nowhere else. At the cross where he died, I exchanged my old guilt for his innocence. And I exchanged my old death for, for never-ending life. I exchanged all the sorry wounds of my life for his healing. And I exchanged my bondage, my enslavement for his freedom. I get to exchange despair for hope. The whole world, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, the whole world makes the great exchange at the same place, right at the cross. And when we come to the cross... Heavenly Father, he takes my old idolatrous self, my messed up heart, and he does a kind of surgery and, and gives me back something new. And then he actually he gives, he gives his divine presence, the Holy Spirit, to walk with me in my life as my guide, my savior, my, my leader, my friend. And it, boy, if it hasn't happened for you, it can happen for you. It can happen today. It can happen before you leave the building. It can happen before you turn off your phone today. And it needs to happen. I was talking to a friend this week about, about the running high. And, and, and how about what it's like when you go running early in the morning and you just find yourself drawn to God and you pray. Well, that's what happens when God is within somebody. The with God life, which can begin today. 
But that's just the beginning. It, the, the canvas, again, the, the duration of that life, well, there's no end to it. And you can't miss it. I mean, if you miss grace, if you, if you miss that sense of peace with God, if you miss the gift of forgiveness, if you miss having the power to change, finding comfort in grief and purpose in life and hope beyond death, if you miss all of it, if you miss Jesus, then you've lost. You've lost everything that matters. Now, this is particularly important. Uh, not as a pastor, but as a friend. Remember, Jesus says, I call you my friends. We're friends here. You can know all of that. Many of you, you've heard that message a hundred times. You can hear it, and hearing it doesn't change a thing. Because grace calls for a question. And the great question of Jesus, the question that hangs over the human race, is simply this. Will you receive me by grace? This is not the spiritual performance plan. Will you receive me by grace? Maybe I come to the cross and say, but, but Lord, all my guilt. And, and he says, that's the reason for the cross. That's grace. No matter what your age, no matter what your background, no matter how good or bad you think the past is that trails you, how adequate or not your performance may be, how large or how small your regrets, everything can change. Will you receive me by grace? A new identity, a new family, a new hope, a new future. But you have to decide and you have to respond. You make a promise. It's a commitment. And you may have never done that before. It doesn't have to be hard. It's really simple. It just means I understand. Lord, I understand that you love me. I repent, which just means I'm going to turn from what was and I'm going to turn towards something new. I'm going to turn towards you. I tell God, I say, God, with your help, I want to die to all of that old stuff, to my old heart. I want to come alive in you. I want to put my life in your hands, life with Jesus, following Jesus. That will be the number one priority of my existence. And you can do that and you can do it now. You can have sins forgiven, peace with God, the Holy Spirit taking up residence in your life. You're never alone. And if you miss it, you miss everything. So here's what we're going to do together. We're going to come to the Lord's table. If you're watching us online, now is the time to, to gather together the elements, the bread and the wine that we'll share. We're going to come to the Lord's table and, and we're going to pray and at the table, we're going to give you a chance to make a decision. And if you've never made the decision before, let this be the moment that God finally presses through whatever barriers have kept you from him. And when communion is done, when you've made that decision to kind of seal it, we're going to invite those of you who are in the room to come forward. Why come forward? Well, God... God knows if there's 10,000 steps between you and him, he'll take every one of them except the last. You can take that one little one. I'm going to ask you to come forward. And in the shadows here of the cross, 
We're going to pray together. Then when the service is all done, we're going to have people available to pray with you and talk about next steps. We want to give you a gift. We have a marvelous little book. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. Ten million copies of this thing in print because it's just a beautiful way of illustrating what happens when God takes up residence in a human life. Ten million copies in print. Our 200 are in transit somewhere, so we ordered them weeks ago. But we will make sure we get it into your hands in the weeks ahead. But we just love the opportunity to stand here at the cross with you and pray as a way of sealing what God has done. Before we come to the table, would you pray with me now? just invite you to, to bow your heads and close your eyes. And as we prepare to celebrate this meal, which points so dramatically to the cross, we acknowledge, Lord, that we may know all about grace. And if we do, we just want to say thank you, God, for it. Maybe for some of you, there's somebody in your world for whom you want to pray. Maybe they're sitting here today. Maybe in your life you've just never been clear on what it's all about until now. Today is your day. And maybe you've been around the church a long time. But finally, at last, today it just clicked. Whatever the reason, wherever you find yourself today, here in the building, joining us online, You can pray, Heavenly Father, I confess my sins and I turn towards you, I repent. And I receive from you the free gift of forgiveness, life lived purely by grace. And I will follow you and be with you and I want that more than anything else for the rest of this life and for the life to come. Now God, as we gather around your table, Lead us to the foot of the cross to feel the warmth and the embrace of Jesus. To celebrate that great exchange, that gift of grace that makes life both possible and joyful. Be with us here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Those of you in the room, Let me invite you to take the top off the communion package. And I want you to hold in your hand the small wafer of bread. What you hold is a tangible reminder of Jesus. As you hold this, you realize that he holds you. The, the very things about which we were talking were so dramatically illustrated. The importance, the centrality of the cross made its, its first appearance in this, in this illustration, in that moment when Jesus took bread and broke it. My body, he said will be broken for you. You should do this. Do this as a way of remembering. Honor the gift of grace. What a thing it must have been 
for God the Father, creator of the, of the universe, to take his life and put it in the hands of the world. The very thought that you could hold even a reminder, a symbol, a representation of him. What a staggering thought. But it's dwarfed compared to the idea that, that those moments spent on earth and that journey to the cross means that forever God now holds you. Eat this in remembrance of Christ and be thankful. Again, those of you who are joining us in the room, there is, if you are here for the first time, a second layer, which you're discovering that if you peel it back, you expose just a, a small container of juice because in the end, it wasn't the size of the gift we hold, but the grandeur of the one to whom it points that mattered. Jesus took a cup. He said, this cup represents the new covenant, one sealed through the shedding of my blood. And when he finally spoke the words, it is finished, his blood having fallen to the earth, it was indeed complete. And here we come to the leveling ground of the cross and in grace receive what has been offered that we could never achieve or attain. And here we remember, and here we celebrate, and here we hold him while he holds us. Drink this in remembrance of Christ and be thankful.